Hello, and welcome to Sophie's Corner, an educational podcast that explores the paths of healing and justice for survivors of sexual assault and rape. Here, we aim to understand the different processes a survivor may go through on their individualized path towards rehabilitation. The first three episodes of this podcast are going to be focused on the justice aspects of the processes. So I'm going to be talking to a medical care professional. I will be talking about a prosecuting attorney and what their job looks like and what that legal process looks like for survivors who choose to either go to criminal or civil court. And I will also be talking about the legal reporting process for police. Our medical care systems and our legal systems have been around for decades. And while yes, to an extent they do work, there are definitely times where all of those establishments fall short. And so while this podcast will be exploring exactly what is going on in the moment, what those processes look like here and now, I will be also having conversations about what if. What could we do to better improve these establishments so that we can provide survivors with the best quality of care possible so that when they enter the legal system, there is a decreased risk of re-traumatization. What is happening now and what can we do in the future? I think these conversations are so important because while, yes, maybe they're idealistic in a way, it's important to keep our minds open about what could be and how we can continue to improve our status quo. So with that said, before I move on to the bulk of our episode for today, I would just like to reiterate that everyone is their own unique individual. There is absolutely no right or wrong way to heal from trauma, and everyone has their own paths for doing so. This podcast serves as a safe haven for information, education, and most importantly, conversation for a topic that can be very difficult to talk about. I hope that whether you're a survivor who is coming to this platform to look for guidance on the next step, or you're just somebody who's interested in understanding the systems and engaging in this conversation, that you find encouragement and you find agency in the arsenal of information, the arsenal of tools that this podcast offers to formulate a path that is best for you. Jumping right into today's episode, I interviewed Elizabeth Barressa, a pediatrician practicing out of Eugene, Oregon, who has worked for many years with children who have experienced sexual assault and abuse. We started the interview by talking about the day-to-day and how she prepares herself to go into that room and how she prepares herself to offer the best quality of care for the child in the moment. We then move on to talking about the processes of a rape kit, the processes of screening that are done for a victim. She does a great job of explaining that the agency of the victim is never lost in these processes. Rather, the victim drives the pace and the timing with which the rape kit can be done. Let's say that rape kit is fully finished, and then the victim decides to throw it out. That is completely within their jurisdiction. We then segue into the secondary portion of her job, which is testifying for victims in court. And she provides an excellent overview of what that looks like, what that feels like, And we finish up our our interview by talking about what is working and what we wish we could change. Uh, My name is Elizabeth Barresa. I am a pediatrician. So I have 
additional training in just the care of children. And then after that, I have additional training in child abuse as that kind of like a subset of that. Okay. Where have you gained your working experience? The only place that I have really worked outside of training is Eugene, Oregon, Peace Health Medical Group, primary care pediatrician, office care, and hospital care, and medical director, Child Advocacy Center of Eugene, which is the Center for Child Abuse Evaluation. And I worked there doing medical care physical examinations. And I was the designated medical professional for child abuse in Lane County, which is, there's the abbreviations called the DMP, which every county in Oregon has. And so I reviewed every case of child abuse that involved possible injury to the child, physical injury in some way. There would be two separate situations, and if it was a, in particular, if it was a sexual assault or a child or adolescent or teen sexual abuse case, there are two different kinds that it, ways that it might present or that that person might ask for help. It could be acute so that that's happened really recently, like that day or within a couple days, or it could be something that's a remote occurrence that has happened many months or weeks before. So if it was an acute situation, like someone was coming in or a ch child was being brought in maybe to the emergency room, I would be seeing them there in that setting. And if it was something that was not acute, we had time to sort of organize things differently. If it had happened many months before, the child or the teenager might be coming into the clinic. And they'd probably be there for a couple hours. Okay. What does a medical exam for child abuse look like? It is a medical exam that's really identical to any other kind you might receive that's sort of head to toe. It's just Physically, it's more detailed, so you might be paying a lot more attention to really small things, like on the outside of the child. And the other part would be additional evaluation in the form of x-rays, blood tests, scans of the child's body to try to answer the question of what happened to the child or what is the story of that child's illness or injury. Dr. Baressa did not receive the same certificate, which is a certificate that forensic nurses have to perform rape kits. However, she's been in the room with several forensic nurses who have performed rape kits, so she was able to give me an overview of what one might look like. I can't go through all the steps, but I can, I can describe it generally. Okay. Um, 
the first thing that's part of the rape kit is a just technically a questionnaire. It's not part of the medical record or part of the legal record, law enforcement. It's just remains with the kit and it's questions that the examiner is trained to ask about circumstances, symptoms, timing, clothing, you know, what, what, how they feel, any specific events that they might remember involving touching or contact or injury to any part of the body, you know, head to toe. I think with the, the kits, people kind of think about sexual activity in like the genital area, but really a lot of the um, collection or the yield from it may come from other parts of the body. So injuries that, that kind of coincidental injuries that happen at the same time, like to your arms or your legs or your back. So it's really head to toe. It includes a, um, a diagram of the person's body, like head to toe, front and back, where everything, every mark on their body is from the top of their head and their hair all the way to the bottom of the feet is documented and marked. And that um, diagram then has additional places for whoever is doing the um, collection to add more notes, like at the time that the person might explain to them. The rest of the exam is, looks like, like Q-tips pretty much. And the Q-tips are all separated into different envelopes so that they can be preserved. And then from those Q-tips, different kinds of testing can be done. So for instance, there will be Q-tips that are used to swab and wipe at the skin at all different locations that the victim might be able to explain, like this happened there, this person touched me there, and the Q-tips will be you know, touched and sampled, and then they're all laid out to dry, to air dry, and then they're put into these actually paper envelopes, and that's just the kind of air that it needs to keep it preserved properly. There are also envelopes that are intended for like a saliva swab from the mouth, um, swabs from like the genital area specifically, and some for that should contain hairs from the head and the genitals of that person. And depending on the age and the circumstances, they may also have some swabs that are meant to be taken under the fingernails for anything that might the person might have you know scratched at or have under their nails and then the biggest part of the kit is actually the clothes so the clothes that the person's wearing or the underwear or the kid you know pajamas or whatever those things are are taken and put into the kit as part of the whole package so that's what it looks like. I mean, the persons that is the victim that is participating 
is answering questions, is explaining different parts of their body and what they remember. And they're having these Q-tips sort of swabbed or wiped on different parts of their body. And a couple hairs plucked. And it takes, I mean, by the time you really go through all the, you know, very, and it's all done very slowly and explaining each step and what's happening and why, like why we're swabbing here, why we're swabbing there and asking about that. It takes a couple hours really to do that. And I think part of the, what the, sane nurses are so good at is being able to read the person and sort of just meet them where they're at. Like if they need some more time or they have more questions or they even want to come back tomorrow, they're really good at pacing that. So it's very, it, very victim centered and I don't want to say friendly. It's not friendly, but it's not adversarial and there's no pressure. It's just, and they could collect the whole thing and the victim, the person could say, I don't want to submit that. <laughs> and they can, you know, not do it. So it's all very, they're very in control. What does your role look like in the courtroom? There's two ways that someone who's providing medical care evaluation for an abused child might present to court. And the first is for grand jury. And the second kind would be a trial, a criminal trial. And for grand jury, that's where the evidence is being presented by law enforcement to the grand jury of citizens, just asking for their approval or their decision as to whether the case should be charges should be brought. So whether it qualifies as a crime, that's kind of our first step. And the grand jury for child abuse actually happens out of the courthouse at the child abuse center. And they do that on purpose so that the child or the victim doesn't actually have to go to the courthouse. It's like a, a more child-friendly environment and those kind of proceedings don't have to be done in court so they take that opportunity to have that so I would be called as a witness to testify there and what law enforcement would be doing is presenting to this jury or of citizens here's the information maybe from law enforcement or from me or even from the child themselves which we try to avoid just to gather the in initial information. And I would probably be talking for, they'd ask me questions. They'd have things in front of them and it's just people like you saying, you know, could you explain this or how did this, I don't quite understand that. Or they're basically just asking me to clarify the information. Is there anything you wish to change in either the medical or the legal systems? Um, for the medical part, I think my wish is that every person, whether they be an adult or a child, would have access to the optimal 
system. So there's a lot of research about what the best way to respond and the best sort of like child-centered or victim-centered way to approach all the, the needs that they might have or treatment. And I think all over the country, there's such a varying degree of ability to do it that way that I wish there was some kind of uniform procedure or system by which everyone got the same quality of care. Like for instance, in Oregon, we have the child abuse centers and we have a law that was basically brought about to ensure that whether you are a child that lives in a county with 500 people and it's super remote and you know they don't have access to specialists or detectives or forensic interviewers that you get the same care and evaluation that a child in that lives in Portland might and i know there's a lot of variability from one place to another especially in the country and i wish it, it could all be top notch that's all that's good Anything for the legal system? Yes. I wish that the legal system was better funded because almost universally, the agency that is representing the victim or, yeah, the victim is a public defender's office or a public office and how well they're funded and how well all their personnel are trained and what, what support they have available, that's kind of what determines the experience of the victim. So I wish they were better. They could have the right amount of time and support for all the victims that they might be trying to help. And then I have a second really big idealistic want on the legal system that we see so many times where everyone knows the situation, what happened, but it's that the legal system can't really answer that and make it right. Like the, the system doesn't have a way to correct or respond or sort of fix everyone's situation. It's just not perfect. Yeah, definitely. And like you can't, it can, it can do a lot of things, the legal system, but it's just not perfect for every situation. Can you talk about the discrepancy in standard of care from place to place? Well, community standard of care, like how you do things in one place or another can be so different. One place could be very progressive and have all these well-trained people that are kind of, kind of on the right track. And then another place could be like, oh, what's that? Oh, like, I, I don't know what to do about that. Or that's dumb. Or they just, there's so much, there's no standard of care that seems to be easily 
pushed out to everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think like, like a federal program could maybe mediate that? Like if there was like sort of a program like SANS or SANS for the forensic nurses? Well, that's what I was trying to think of. Like, well, I'm not a SANE. I don't have that, that I don't yeah. have the training. Um, yes. Like right now, for instance, I'm thinking of like that, the meeting of those two things. The child abuse centers are, can be, um, they are part, there's a national sort of like network of them in the United States. And they have, they are like top notch on the most current research and the most current standards and the absolute best way to do everything from soup to nuts, from legal to social to medical to everything for, for a child from birth to 18, right? They have this down tight and they are accredited and any place in the United States that wants to open a center. So like in Oregon, every county has a center and then they can be, or they want to be accredited, which means they've met all those standards and all the care that they provide is in that category. So, I mean, that's a good example of, okay, you have to have a center, it has to be accredited. That kind of guarantees that, that level of competency and care, but it, there's no there's no direction, for instance, in our state, and I talk a lot about our state because I don't know like every other place how that works, but there's no mandate from our legal system or welfare system or medical system saying that, for instance, in Malher County, that's like a remote county of Oregon, saying that they need to work with the child abuse center so they can have like a, a case in a victim and be like, no, we're just not going to, we're just not going to use that. We're not going to take them there. Isn't that? Yeah, be- that's problematic. It's a lot of work. So it, I mean, they, because if they do, they're, they're, they're going to have to do it a certain way and they may not want to. And, and sometimes it's not, the reasons aren't malicious but they may not have enough funding to do all the things that are would have to happen. They may not have time. They might not have an extra detective to drive 150 miles <laughs> to, to, they don't may have a social worker that, that can get the child to the place where they have the forensic interviewer. You know, they just may not have the resources. So sometimes they just say, meh, We'll just do it ourselves. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, but it, there's a disparity. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, so if you're a sexual assault victim in a place that's remote or has, you know, different resources, obviously your care is going to be different. And there's a, there's a move for, with children to standardize that and, and really eliminate that. And it works pretty well. But for adults, they don't have the same system. Interesting. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's more of a push for children over adults? I think it's because of the specialized needs of children. 
and the use of the child abuse centers? How so, like the use of the child abuse centers in terms of giving medical care? Yes, they have medical, that's part of their package. They do all the things that the child needs in that one place. And so they actually have a medical clinic within it. So the kids can, they'll come there and it's just like any other medical clinic. And they have, we have some specialized equipment that we would use that they would have, we have there that you wouldn't have at a normal doctor's office. But then in the same building, they have a forensic interviewer, you know, where they can sit, set up instead of having a lot of different people talk to the child that may or may not know specifically how to interview a child or a teenager or someone that's developmentally delayed. So they can bring the child there, then it's in the same place as the medical exam office. And they can interview with the specialist who can do it one time and it's recorded and it's a video, you know, like a one-way mirror. So all the other people that need the same information about the case can be can can gather that without repeat it, repeating the process with the child. So it can just be done once. And then that's the same place that the grand jury can occur. Okay. So they all there. And then even better, the center sort of becomes the meeting place for every expert that's involved with that child's case. And so literally 20 people will be sitting at a table together in person at that center discussing that child's case. So it sort of like brings everyone to the child and they just come there and the child might come in or the teenager two or three or four times, but they're coming to this place that they already know. And the people there, they know. And they have an advocate, like a, a, a kind of like one person that's dedicated to them that will always be there. So it really helps. Yeah, absolutely. To keep the consistency and the lack of like crazy transitions, to keep that down is important. And everybody works together. Mm-hmm. It's all centered around them instead yeah. of, okay, Billy, now go to the police station. Okay, now go downtown to the courthouse. Okay, now go to the, this doctor's office. Now go there. Yeah. It's oh, it creates that. that process, that disjointed process creates more trauma for the victim, like for the adult victim. Oh, it's really hard. And the parents actually can get support at the same place. So maybe while um, someone's talking to the child, the, they can, another person can be talking to the parent. So it's kind of like one-stop shopping. They have parent support groups. They have victim support groups there where they'll, they'll meet and they'll kind of match them up in these cohorts of support groups. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have like a childcare person that if the family has like, let's say it's a 10-year-old coming in and she has a five-year-old and a three-year-old sister and Mm -hmm. the mom, parents are bringing them in. They have um, trained child life, child care specialists that will 
take the younger siblings into the playroom and feed them snacks and do art with them while their sister and their parents are doing their, the other things. Right. They'll go and they have transportation. They'll go and pick up families and kids, bring them there. They do pretty much anything, <laughs> anything that they're, that that's, that's like good to know that there is that support for children victims. It's just too bad that that same support can't be extended out to adult victims. And there maybe there's places that can, but I think more is expected of adults, you know, some, but like teenagers, like at the center, there's, go pick them up at school. They need to come in for something. It's great. So it's uh, like birth to 18, those centers? Yep. They also serve people over 18 that have developmental or intellectual disabilities because they need the same specialized approach. Right. And that concluded the interview with Dr. Barassa. I was so lucky to be able to talk to a licensed pediatrician who has worked for many years with children who have experienced sexual assault and trauma. She did an excellent job of talking about what the medical care system looks like now and what she wishes could change in the future. Okay, my beautiful starseeds, thank you so much for tuning into the first episode of Sophie's Corner. I'm here to remind you that your souls are beautiful, your souls are powerful, and your souls are absolutely indestructible. On the next episode, we will be discussing all things legal. So tune in if you are interested in learning about the legal process of a survivor who decides to bring their case to either criminal or civil court. Signing off, Sophie. <laughs>